good morning, Redemption Church. Good to see you. Welcome to the first service. This is excellent, especially being a divisional Sunday. God knew what he was doing, really putting this together. So now what I want you to do really quick before we pray, I want you to look around this room and I want you to look around. And today is the perfect day to do it with the game and maybe some people being gone, because I want you to take note of what is missing. People. Yes. Now, some of you are going to be tempted to go and I will check off their names and judge them. I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about the people that Jesus still desires to reach. The reason we've done this and gone to two services is to make space for more people. In fact, this week, uh, you might have seen on our Facebook feed or Twitter, uh, we put out a passage, which is 2 Kings chapter 4, where uh, Elisha is uh, summoned to the house of a widow who is starving and has no money. And God tells the prophet to tell the woman to gather as many empty jars as she can because God is going to miraculously fill those. Right? That's the heart behind it. We are bringing our empty seats, our empty jars, and we're asking God to fill. So when we said we're going to two services and we said it's not for our convenience, but it's for God's mission and God's glory, that's exactly what we mean. So we're asking you to pray, God, fill these seats. God, who do you want me to reach out to? God, how do you want me on mission? How can I have your heart, your passion, your love for the lost? Because that's why this exists. And I guarantee you, if you come to second service, there will be more empty seats. All right. So, um, so we have lots of filling to do when we're asking the Holy Spirit to go as we obey with joy and gratitude for what he has done. So that is the heart behind all of this. So we kick off first service today with prayer. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the reminders of your truth that shapes our life and shapes our character, not simply to obey laws, but as we're going to see today, that we do this out of gratitude for you. That we pursue the Christian life because you are satisfying, because you give us all that we need and more. And so I am praying, Holy Spirit, today that you deeply and powerfully grip our hearts and liberate us to what it means to have a truly fulfilling Christian life. That it wouldn't simply be about the responsibility. It wouldn't simply be about the obedience. It wouldn't simply be about the duty. But it would be about the sheer delight of following and knowing you. So work in us today as a church for your name and for your glory and your awesome name. Amen. All right. Well, last week we began a little Jan term series that we've uh, really decided to entitle All That Matters, right? We wanted to get to the core of what really counts in the Christian faith. And a lot of this comes down to this idea of what it means to really, truly, and passionately seek God. So much so that we decided to launch a whole year-long emphasis that we are calling Seek 13, where we as a church and each of us as individuals are, are saying, God, this is the year that I want to grow exponentially, not simply in my knowledge, not simply in information, not simply in my duties, but more importantly, I want to grow in what it means to know you in a way that is undeniable and completely passion-filled. 
That is the heart of this year for us as a church. And so uh, we're going to be constantly hitting that theme, constantly pressing into God. That is our heart so that when people come in and these seats begin to get filled, the thing they say is not, hey, good music, interesting preaching. That guy doesn't dress well, though, or whatever they're going to say. We want them to say God is in that place. That, that's what we seek. And so we seek him in 2013. Now, one of the things we're doing to leverage technology is uh, on a very regular basis, maybe even more than once a day, uh, myself or Pastor Ryan or Pastor Scott or others maybe in the church, uh, we will be just putting out little things on Twitter. I don't know if you do Twitter. I just started doing Twitter. I feel embarrassed as a grown man to even say that word. Um, but we're leveraging it nonetheless. Because we want to constantly be putting out little bites and little morsels and little ideas of what it means to truly press into the one that has redeemed us. Right? To pursue the one, to possess the one that has possessed us in his grace. That is the heart of what we are doing as a church. And so that's what we want to do. And today we continue that theme. We started last week. And we started last week in a very interesting place, and we're going to kind of continue to build on that today. And as we do this, I want you to know that we are going to make it rain up in here when it comes to the Bible. All right, we're going to make it rain up in here. And here's what I mean by that. We are going to be looking at a lot of verses today, and we're not going to spend a lot of time. I mean, we're going to blow through really fast, but we're going to look at a lot of verses, and they're going to span all sorts of real estate, Old Testament, New Testament, uh, in the Pentateuch, in the wisdom literature, in the Gospels, in the epistles, even Revelation. We're going to be everywhere. And yet I'm doing this for a reason. I want all of these passages that span the entire Bible to be like lug nuts on the wheel of our church and our life. And I want to cinch it down, building a case throughout the entire Bible so that we understand what it is we are to really be seeking. Again, it's seeking God, His strength, His satisfaction, His serenity by really pressing into Him. And I emphasize that because I know the propensity that we have as Christians. We have a propensity, if we don't ratchet this tight and secure it, we have this propensity to begin to believe and start to function under the assumption that the depths of the Christian life are really only experienced with law-keeping, religious routine, and self-reliant, self-discipline. And you know what? You can do that, but you're not going to enjoy that. You are not going to be liberated by that. You are not going to feel inspired by that. You are not going to be driven to seek and find more if that is the heartbeat. And so this morning, we're looking at a lot of things, but we're trying to drive it to this one core of what it means to seek. Now, part of the challenge, and this goes back even to last week, uh, part of the challenge is that I believe Christians, New Testament, Jesus-centered, Bible-believing, Spirit-filled, God-upward Christians, we struggle with our identity. We struggle with identity. And it's tragic because identity is a very powerful thing. Identity shapes us and it motivates us and it moves us. And we all, to some degree, have a relationship pretty intimately with identity. We all realize that it really defines us and therefore kind of drives our actions. And think about the ways we define ourselves. Some of them are very simple. A bumper sticker is a way people define themselves. 
And you even notice you have camaraderie on the road if you see a bumper sticker you agree with, right? You see one, you're like, that's right, that guy knows what he's talking about. Because we're similar. You see one you disagree with, you're like, that guy's an idiot. Can't believe he'd even put that on his car, right? Because you don't identify with that. Your identity is different than their identity. I think about my daughters. Each of them has a charm bracelet. And on their charm bracelet are different charms that correspond to their identity. So Emma has a guitar and uh, has a dog and has these different things that she likes. And Honor has a little teacup and books and the things that she likes because, again, they represent identity. Some people wear a t-shirt to scream their identity. People use style and they use their dress to show their identity, whether they're a hipster or they're classic or whatever they are. They show that through their identity. Some people use Facebook to show everybody their identity. Please stop. All right. We gotcha. All right. We do. All right. Some people use their occupation. I'm white collar. I'm blue collar. I'm an executive. I'm a sales associate. I'm, I'm jobless. That's my identity. Some people use their categories of I'm a liberal or I'm a conservative or I'm a libertarian or recently I just wanted to smoke weed so I showed up. Um, that's an identity, right? All of these things are identity. Some of our identity was crafted out of hardship. Maybe your identity is cancer survivor, forged out of pain, right? Maybe it's from errors in your past, so your identity is alcoholic or codependent. Maybe felon. Others, you are on the receiving end of that. So your identity may be victim. Growing up, you might have received all sorts of identity for good or bad, right? You're dumb, you're ugly, you're stupid, you don't measure up. I wish you were more like your brother, more like your sister, or you're beautiful, you're talented, you can do anything you want to do. We believe in you, we love you. All of these things shape identity. And because of that, they shape a disposition in us. Those identity markers shape our activity, right? They shape our activity. They shape our action. And then more deeply, they shape our attitude. And then most deeply, it shapes our affection because our identity grounds us to our goals, right? Do you catch that? Identity grounds us to our goals. So if your identity is a certain job and a certain family and a certain look and a certain end goal, then you're going to pursue that because identity shapes you. Which, why I center on this is because when we look at the Bible, we see the very center pin of the gospel is a change in identity. Right? All of those things that you may say, that is my identity. Right? If you're in high school, right? I'm a brain, I'm a nerd, I'm a jock, I'm a whatever. All that identity stuff in Jesus is radically changed. And that's what we saw last week when Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Total identity change, right? He says, this is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Go back to Paul's old identity. Old identity was his heritage, was his nationality, was his occupation, was his capacity to keeping the law, and Paul was faithful and miserable. 
Right? He was striving. He was working. He was seeking to attain. He was laboring with blameless heart, but he was joyless. Because he wasn't truly blameless. And then one day on the Damascus Road, everything changed and Paul died. His identity died. All of that worth, all of that value, all of that purpose, it died. Died to the law, died to performance, died to sin, died to self. Why? He says, to live to God. Right? That old identity died in Christ. My new identity is Christ so that I might live to God. That I might be truly freed for the first time in my life to truly live to God. And in that new identity, it shapes his actions. It shapes his attitudes. It shapes his affections. Away from obedience to the law for law's sake. And into faith propelled by the presence of Christ. That's what he sees. Right? That's his heart. Away from the script mandate unto the Savior's ambitions. That's his heart. See, Paul there on the Damascus Road, when he was crucified with Christ and Christ was now found in him, he finally understood the promise of Jesus. When Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Just take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, it is easy. My burden, my burden's light. See, when Jesus came to the world, he did not establish a yoke of new law. Jesus didn't come to the world and say, you know what, they're so burdened, so let me handle this. I'll burden them more with more rules. Not only Old Testament rules, we'll come up with a whole bunch of new New Testament rules. Now Jesus says, here's the deal. I came into the world so that I would ease the burden. I came into the world so that you would find rest for the first time. I came into the world so that the standard of God wouldn't be so weighty you couldn't carry it. Because the Old Testament law is too weighty to carry. He says, I came into the world so that you might be liberated. So that you might be uh, risen up with the newness of life. That you feel like you can actually see things achieved in God that you didn't think was possible before. See, that is the essence of the gospel. It's less about here's a new set of expectations and it's way more about a new set of inspirations that transform your life, transform your actions, transform your attitudes, transform your affections because you take and you rest and you learn. See, that is the heart of the good news of Jesus. That is what it means to be brought into new life in him, to live to God. That's what we were getting at last week, and that's what we build on today. But I want to let you know kind of what is required to really experience this life I'm talking about, right? It's not going to just happen. We don't just fly autopilot and draw closer into God. It doesn't work that way. In fact, some of the things that are required to really press into God, so we're not trying to fulfill all the rules, but we're pressing into Him, and then from that, He lives through us. Well, those things are a little bit more difficult than just laws. Because they deal with our internals. They deal with our heart and our soul, our dispositions. In fact, I would say there's three basic things that are required of us to begin to move in to the God-centered, God-seeking life. The first thing, humility. Humility. It's where we see God is big and I am not. He is great and I suffer under sin. He is immense and I want to be close to that which He is. That means humility. 
In fact, I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. This is what Jesus says to Paul when Paul is struggling. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is made perfect in weakness. See, this is so counterintuitive to our world. Our world says power comes through might. Power comes through growing exponentially in your strength. Here, it's very different. You want to be truly strong in the grace of God, you become small. You become humble. See, part of our problem, I see this in my own life. Um, When I'm distant from God, I, I become big. And my wants of God become big in a wrong way. What I start to do is I start to have this growing bucket of God, give me this and God, give me that. I'm hoping he drops everything from heaven in my ever-growing big bucket to fill me up. God, give me a better family uh, as far as like, you know, us all being happy all the time and give me an easier life where everything works out perfect in every way I would see fed. I want all of my wishes and dreams to come true. Santa, right? Like that's... That's kind of what I start to do. I think it's bigger and bigger and bigger. And you know what happens? It's never going to get filled up. Because I'm getting bigger and my wishes are getting bigger and my desires for me are getting bigger and God can keep pouring and all I'm going to do is keep expanding because I want more of all the wrong stuff. Yet what my prayer is, is to be God, make me smaller. Humble me, make me smaller because when I am small, I'm pretty easy to fill. When I am humbled before God and I I am made small, not in an oppressive, harsh way, but in an easily satisfied, comforted way, what God says is I can fill that up and then it spills out and it affects others. See, the first version is all about me. Getting bigger, getting bigger, getting bigger. In all the wrong ways. Humility says I want to be smaller so you can fill me up so I can pour over for you. And I come to satisfaction much quicker in you than 10,000 things that I almost demand for my satisfaction. And so humility is the key. God, make me small. The second thing is faith. It's where we pray every day, God, make me humble. And we also pray every day, God, help strengthen my faith. Help me see you truly. Hebrews 12, 6. Actually, I think this should be Hebrews 11, 6. It says 12, it should be 11. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists. And so our daily prayer must be, give me a greater sense of Your presence. May I really believe You're true, not just here, but here, right? And link the two together so that I truly, deeply, and powerfully believe And in that, I would believe with determination. And determination is the third thing. Humility, faith, and determination. So that verse goes on to say, and He rewards those who seek Him. And this doesn't mean like uh, once a week I seek Him. It doesn't mean Sunday morning is sufficient for seeking. It doesn't even mean that once a day, every day for quiet time is sufficient for... For seeking. This idea of seeking is a constant, perpetual hunger of the soul where we are praying and asking, God, put your life in my soul so that I am knit to you. I am hungry for you. I am desperate for you. I am needing of you. I am not satisfied apart from you. That has to become the prayer throughout the day, not just once a day, throughout the day, all day long. Pray it 30 times, 40 times, 50 times. I don't care. But you have to be desperate for this stuff to be a seeker now what's cool about this is the target's relatively small 
I'm not rolling in saying here's 613 laws and a couple of thousand other added requirements. I'm not doing that. I'm doing what the gospel says. I'm advocating one basic idea, which is to seek. And man, when you look at the greats of the Bible, you see there were seekers. You see Paul, right? The guy we've been looking at where he says, man, I counted all his loss, all his trash. That I would gain him. I just want him. He was addicted to a want for Jesus. You look at Moses. Moses is the same way. He's like, God, show me your glory. That's all I want. He's like, I don't even want the promised land if you're not going with us. If you're not going, call it off. I'm done because your presence is the all-satisfying thing. I think about Jeremiah. He goes into the throne room, right? And what is it? He hears, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he is a man undone. He wants more of that. Think about John Revelation where Jesus appears to him, resurrected, glorified, glowing, fiery eyes, freak you out stuff, and he falls dead. And then the rest of the book is just in awe, in wonder, in weeping, and in joy because he wants the all-satisfying God. See, I, I, I know in some ways we look at this and go, man, I, I don't know what this means. How do I go and do this? It's really simple and yet hard at the same time. What you pray is just, again, God, write yourself on me. That becomes your daily desire. You say, God, I want to be brought into the sphere of your own affections. I want to be brought into that throne room where you dwell. And I want to see you more clearly and more potently and more passionately than I ever have before. But I need to look upon you. I need to join with you in that way. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it says, And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I want you to look at that verse really closely. How do you grow? How are you transformed into the very image that you were possessed for? We learned that last week, that we were possessed to be ultimately fulfilling the image of Christ. How do you become transformed to that image? You go and you look into that glory. That means, like I said, every day, God, show yourself, show yourself, show yourself to me. Not just simply, what do I need to go do? What rules do I need to follow? What are the bad things to avoid and the good things to seek? Uh, that's fine, provided that all of that falls under a deeper housing where God is the focal point, He is the reason, He is the purpose. See, that's what we're getting at this morning. And I find, even in my own life, that I too often settle for halfway. Or maybe half is too generous. I, I settle for a quarter of the way, Right? I start to feel pretty good about myself if I have some level of self-discipline. I feel good about myself if I read my Bible every day. I feel pretty good about myself if uh, I start to serve a few people. I feel good about myself if I'm in a Bible study or a regroup or my kids are going to youth group or whatever else. I mean, I can start to feel really good about the technicalities of things. But I know what God wants to motivate me by is something deeper. Because here's also what I notice when I'm kind of half satisfied, when I kind of go only halfway, um, if I'm completely honest, I'm being totally transparent, um, God 
probably doesn't even come in the top 10 of things that get me excited. When, when I'm just going through the motions, right? When I'm just doing the deeds of Christianity, he probably isn't even in the top 10 of things that really get me excited. What happens is I'm like, no, I'm faithful. I'm good. I'm obedient. But boy, what really gets me excited is my kids, when they succeed, that gets me excited. What gets me excited is my hobby. What gets me excited is my wife. Woo, my wife gets me excited. What gets me excited is whatever my escapism is. What gets me on my feet cheering are 10, 20, 30 other things that are way more resonating to my emotions and soul than my God. It's where I come to church on Sunday and I sing, Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I lift your name on high. Don't not do it too loud so nobody hears me. Um, right? Because I can't sing. All right, so, but when the Seahawks score, hands are up here. When the Seahawks score, yeah! Do I do that toward my God, though? No. What grips my affections most reveals something about me. Right? And I can get excited about all kinds of other stuff, but then when it comes to God, why is it that I struggle with that kind of enthusiasm and passion and excitement? And the answer is because God isn't that interesting. Because He's so distant sometimes. All these other things I go to to really fill my soul. But God is there like broccoli. It's good for me. He's like a vitamin. I should take him every day. But he doesn't drive me. He doesn't hold me. He doesn't mobilize me. He doesn't move me. And I think tragically, some of us actually will look at this and say, that's not even possible. It is not even remotely possible that I would get up on my feet and cheer for God like I would for the hawks. It is not even remotely possible that I could be more passionate for my God than my spouse or my kids or my hobby or my interest or my vice. Some of us get more excited about our sins and our vices than we do our God. And we think it's not even doable. It doesn't happen. Happen to people in the Bible, it doesn't happen today. Happens to crazy people today, it doesn't happen to normal people today. That's what we can start to believe. And so we just kind of say, I'll obey him, but I'm probably not going to be too obsessive about him. And yet what I see throughout the Bible repeatedly is that not only, this, not only is this possible, it is promised. It is promised that we who press in can experience this kind of passion and hunger and want of God. If we come in humility and we come in faith and we come as a seeker, we can press in and it begins with the most foundational thing in the Bible. It starts with love. Love is this first big component that we want to focus in on, right? What it means to love and be loving the God who is love, right? And we go, oh, I got this one. I know love. Well, let's unpack it. The first thing you need to know is God is love, right? First John 4, 8. That is his very, disp- that's his very essence, his disposition. The Trinity has always been love. And love is meant to be expressed. And so God, who is love, expresses love. And he expresses it in two ways. In one sense, he expresses it in commitment. Love the commitment of Romans chapter 8. 
says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He says, no. He says, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we go, amen, that is commitment. Nothing can separate us. That is a powerful truth. We go, yes, that is love. It's commitment. But love is also passion. Deuteronomy 10, 15, it says, Yes, the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is to this day. Here you see with God, he didn't just say, Hey, Israel, because I'm committed to you, I love you. And in love, I express commitment. And that's the only form of love. No, for God, love is as much an affection of the heart as it is a commitment to his promises. It is both. And I think sometimes in Christian circles, we take that word love and we say, well, there's two different kinds of love. There's feeling, ooh, mushy, and then there's commitment. There's agape, like this committed, like, I don't like you, but I love you to the end kind of love. And then there's, oh, I feel deep passion, deep ethos. Well, the reality is that biblical love is both. It's not either or. And we need to start getting that in our mind that that is the full definition of love. Love is not just commitment. It is not mostly commitment. It is equally both and how we feel and how we act. That is love, right? And it's that form of love that God expresses love of commitment and love of feeling that we have to then impose on ourselves when we read this. Pharisee comes to Jesus, some lawyers and others, they're asking him, hey man, what's the most important commandment in the whole Bible? And then Jesus says, the most important is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God. Right? Does this mean just in commitment? No, it's commitment and affection. It is, I am lock solid toward you and I feel it to the core. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. This is the first commandment. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. That's it. So when we're talking about our Christian faith and we're saying, I want to be a truly obedient Christian, the first step to an obedient Christian is we are praying daily, God, may I love you with deep commitment and with total affection. And may I love my neighbor with deep commitment and total affection. And that's something only God can wield and build into us. We cannot muster affectionate love apart from the Spirit doing it in us. And we're supposed to do it with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. But that is what God seeks. He seeks a people that love him at this level. Because that would be true obedience. Obedience that delights in what it means to obey. Not just simply obey because it's dutiful. For example, uh, here uh, in a couple of years is going to be my 25th wedding anniversary. And on that anniversary, I, I could plan an amazing trip. I could say, honey... You know what? I, I'm going I'm to take you to Europe. 
We're, we're going we're gonna to hit just five-star places. We're going to be staying in the penthouse. I'm going to make sure every single day there's rose petals on the bed because I'm a romantic guy. You know, I'm, I'm going to make sure your favorite little chocolate's on the pillow. I'm going to make sure we see every single sight. I'm going to make sure every single need is provided for. I am going to make sure this is the most amazing trip to celebrate 25 years. And there at the end of the trip, we're laying in bed one morning. She turns to me and she says, man, you, just, you must really love me. Tell, me. tell me all the ways you feel about me. And imagine if I said... Well, I don't have any feelings for you. I don't have any feelings. She would be shocked. i say, but look how committed I am. I've stayed for 25 years. I've never strayed. I've worked hard to provide for you and the kids. I've given you a house. I've always made sure there was food. People had what they needed. I took you on this big trip. I did everything you wanted to do. I served you in every way possible. It's just, I don't know how to explain it. I just don't feel for you. I don't have affection. I have commitment though, and that's love, right? Guess who is who's flying separate, right? And why? Why would she be so offended, so bothered if I did everything love says to do, but I didn't feel it? Because she'd say, that's not love. That's responsibility, that's duty. But we want true love as people, as human beings. We want to be wanted not just people who want to do the right thing toward our lives. We want to be wanted. And that's what God sees. Now, is God going to be satisfied with duty over disobedience? Well, disobedience is bad. Duty is better than disobedience. But duty is not what the gospel strives for. Jesus didn't come to the world to save us to duty. He didn't save us so we go, okay, now I have to do it this way. I used to have to do it that way. Now I have to do it this way. Now he says, I saved you from have to do to want to do. To want to do, that is the essence of what Jesus offers us in the good news. To delight in him for the sheer joy of who he is. And when you do that, when you delight in him for the sheer joy of who he is, you know what that does? That fills you up. Right? Because now you're doing what you were most designed to do. We have learned a few times as a church that we were built for worship. We were designed to bear the image of God and show that to the universe around us, right? So our greatest design when we are in the sweet spot is when we are most worshiping with heart, mind, will, strength, everything. That's when we're in the sweet spot. But we're so far sometimes from the sweet spot, we would never know that's the sweet spot. And so we resort to duty, doing right things. And it's tragic because then in that we start piling up the laws, right? Well, I've got to do the right thing. So here, well, there are all the things in the Bible. Okay, there's all the duties. Here's all the responsibilities. Here's the checklist. Here's everything I'm supposed to do. And I've got to struggle to not judge people that don't do it. And I've got to not feel so bad when I don't do it. And we get into that whole mess. And yet Paul says something really weird because he knows he's dead to the law and alive to Christ. And the life he now lives is by faith in the Son of God. So he says in Romans 13, 8, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. I love the simplicity. Like, no, 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 you don't understand. We've got to get all those laws cataloged, man, so I can conquer that list. And he says, no, 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 you don't understand. If you just love with deep commitment and deep affection, first your God and then your neighbor, you've got it nailed, man. You don't need the list. You need just the center. You don't need a shotgun. You need one single bullet just traveling straight to bullseye. That's all you need. That's very liberating. But it's hard for us. Because we're like, oh, no, no, no. We do better with lists. 
We do better with a, a framework of, of, of systems to operate off of. And Paul says, no. I'm dead to the law. I live in Christ unto God. And I know if I love, I fulfill. Love Him, love others. Because love transcends just mere obedience, mere action, mere attitude, mere affection. It shapes it all. Love shapes it. And so we're to be shaped. Not just so it makes sense, but so that it actually makes us happy in soul and at core because it fills our soul. That's the essence. Now the question is, well, how do you know if you love? I mean, I don't know if you've ever asked that question before, but how do you know you love? How do you know it's love that you sense? Right? When you're dating somebody, you know love, and you also know when love's over because you're done. Right? Sometimes when you're married, you know love. It's when you like them. You know when it's over because it's done. Right? We, we sort of have a sense of what defines love. And I'm going to say this morning that love has two sub-motivators. All right? And they're going to seem juxtaposed, and the first is going to seem odd. But the first sub-motivator to love. So we're looking at the big idea. What does it mean to seek after God? It means to love God with everything. Well, how do I know I love God? Or what do I pursue so that I might love God more? The first sub-motivator. You ready? It is fear. Right? Whoa, wait a minute. That's not an emotion that's tethered to love. No, it's deeply tethered to love. Now, when I say fear, don't think one-dimensional. One-dimensional fear is uh, that which you feel toward an enemy or toward a threat, right? That's just one dimensional. You, you don't know them. You don't have any investment into them. You're just afraid of them. That's one dimensional fear. I'm not talking about one dimensional fear. I'm talking about multi-dimensional fear where it's somebody you respect, you're loyal to, you love. And, 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 and from that respect, loyalty and love, you actually have different outcroppings and experiences of fear. For example, I love my wife and I fear my wife. I do. Now you might go, whoa, she's not here, is she? No, she's not. Um, she's at home sick. Uh, and, and yet I can honestly say I fear. Now, I didn't say I'm scared of her. Right, I'm not scared of my wife. But I fear her. I fear disappointing her. I fear uh, harming her. I fear uh, messing things up. I, I mean, and again, I don't, it, again it, it's because I love her. If I didn't love her, I wouldn't fear those things. But like, whatever, get over it, woman. And then you'd clock me and it'd be over, right? But because I love her, I have some healthy fear. And it's to be the same way toward God. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 2, the writer, Solomon, says to his son, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom. So again, listen to the intensity here making your attentive to wisdom wisdom, and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, and if you seek it like silver and search for it like a hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. The Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, came knowledge and understanding. See, I love the intensity of this. Because it's not, again, just mere nibbling at God. If we just nibble at God, you know what? We're not going to really fear God. We're just going to nibble at God. Oh, I like that little anecdote. I like that little sermon. I like that little verse. I, li- I can put that on a pillow, on a coffee mug, on a bumper sticker, and then people on the road will say, hey, I like that guy, or I don't like that guy. Right? So I, we'll have an identity. I mean, like, we can do all of that, but it's shallow in comparison to this pursuit that's being discussed here. And if you really enter that pursuit, 
If you really go, I want to seek and look and search like a treasure more than college, more than a job, more than the lottery. I want this more than anything else. What do you come to find? The fear of the Lord. Which means that's probably pretty important. And you find the knowledge of God. And fear and knowledge are tethered together. Part of the reason I fear my wife in a good, healthy, loving way is because I know my wife so well. I know which buttons not to push because I fear those buttons. Um, Right? So I know. And I wouldn't want to push those if I really love her anyway. So again, all of that is interrelated. There's a deeper part of this, I I think, too, that's so critical. Um, This is something about how real God is to us. All right? And I'm, I'm... this is maybe where it'll be a little uncomfortable, but, but I, I think it helps. Um, what I find in life is we fear real fears, real knowns, right? So uh, if, if, if there's some obvious threat or warning on our, our dashboard that we see, we, we fear, right? Because it is a real known thing. And we also fear real unknowns. So uh, we don't know if terrorists are going to strike tomorrow. But you know what? We fear that because it's a real unknown. So we fear real knowns and we fear real unknowns. You know what we don't fear? Myths. We don't fear myths. Nobody's fearful of the boogeyman if you're an adult. Nobody's fearful of Santa Claus or Easter Bunny. If you are, we need to talk. All right. You don't fear myths because they're not real. And I, I find, as I talk to people, sometimes God is more of a myth. And they don't fear Him. In fact, the notion of fearing God is almost bizarre because, uh, again, God may not be that, that real, that tangible, that alive in life. And so I'm going to advocate that we fear only to the degree that we believe and we know Him personally. And so here we see, again, that fear is a component even to love and to knowing Him. But we have to seek and look and search and raise and call and climb right to those things. So what are ways that we lovingly sense fear? Fear that expresses love. Well, one is the fear of disappointing God, right? We don't want to let Him down. Paul went through this in 2 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 9, right? Where he did certain things because he fears the Lord. Now, it isn't like, I'm so scared to death of God, I do these things. What he's saying is, no, I don't want to let him down. I don't want to disappoint. He's so real in my life. He's made such a difference. I hold him in such high esteem. I love him so much. I fear disappointing him. I fear not doing everything I can do for what it is he's called me to do. And you know what? That's the way I feel sometimes about my wife. I fear disappointing her. I don't want to let her down. Another form is fear regarding the glory of God, right? Psalm 33, 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. In awe, right? That's for the glory of God. And there's also fear as to the holiness of God. So serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. It says, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Now, I know some of you look at that and they go, whoa, wait, 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 what are you talking about there? This reminds me of a certain group of unnamed boys in the 1980s that had a lot of gunpowder, some gas and fire. I will not name said boys because my mom's watching, but uh, we built or they built this bomb and had this long fuse and we thought we were far enough away. We weren't. Think 
detonated, right? And it was just like, you know? And we all just, terrified. We're like, going, and then you know what our actual action was? Yeah! Right? You know what I'm talking about? You're like, oh, that was awesome, right? That's this. Right? Before you, you stand before your holy God and let him be your terror and let him be your dread. And at the same time, you go, but that was awesome. That is the essence of godly fear. And it's not just an Old Testament thing. I know some of you are going, oh, this is just the Old Testament. No, New Testament also, Hebrews 12. Therefore, let us be grateful, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. what he is. In fact, it's the lack of fear that shows a lack of interest in God. Israel went through this, right? He says, know and see that it is evil and bitter for you have forsaken the Lord your God. The fear of me is just not in you. When we don't fear God, it's because we don't love God and we don't even believe God. And so we would want to see fear cultivated. In fact, even for the unbeliever, Romans 3.18, there's no fear of God before their eyes. It's just the problem. No fear. Oh, but to fear God, that's a whole different thing. And I know some of us go, wait, wait, I really like this God where I cuddle up in his lap and I just sit there and it's all good and it's more like ice than fire. I want that. I can approach with boldness, right? Yes, you can. But we don't approach flippantly. We approach knowing that God is God. That we would have a love-inspired fear. Right? That's the heart. It brings deeper closeness with God. Psalm 25, 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. Right? If we really want to cultivate that friendship, that love, that sense of identity in Him, that sense of commitment, again, all of this has to be both here and here. It has to be both places where He can move and flex and speak. Right? And so you're saying when you fear, I don't want to disappoint Him. And you're saying when you fear, uh, I'm motivated by your awe. I want more of you. That's why I don't want to sin. I'm not, not sinning because I'm afraid of you. I'm, I'm not sinning because I don't want sin to separate me from you because you're so fulfilling. That's the heart behind this. You pray and read and give and serve and share because you fear missing out on him. Not because you fear his retribution. That's how we fear. Because you've got to remember, you are in Christ. You're dead to the law. You live to God. Highlight two. You live to God. You don't live simply for God. In fact, you can't live for God away from God. You can only live for God to God. Right? That's how it works. Blood has washed your sin completely. You do nothing to do it. But loving fear keeps us tethered. Tethered. Right? This is why it says in 2 Corinthians 7.1 that we bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. Right? The only way, when people go, well, Matt, if you're getting rid of the law, if we're dead to the law and alive in Christ, then how do we obey? Right here, we fear. But fear is only one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is delight. Right? Delight. So it's not just the, oh, oh, the bad of fear, even though fear is good, it's not bad. But the other side is that we delight. To fulfill a full-bodied, rounded love, we delight. And I love this idea of the, of the delight that we experience because there's a very substantial reason why we're to delight. And that is because, you ready? God delights in you. 
Did you know God actually delights in you? Listen to this, Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. Right? Not just, eh, they're okay. Right? He says, great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. As we gather together on Sunday morning and we sing praise to God and we celebrate how awesome he is, he sits in heaven and sings over you. That's how much God delights in you. You are a whistle on his lips. You are one who brings that little, because hmm, 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 he's in love with you. Right? So the same God that you are to fear, understand how much he delights. Man, he crazy delights in you. Because your identity, right? Your identity is in his son. So he's nuts about you. And if he delights in you, the response is you and I are delight in him. First as an emotion. Right? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice is not a thought. Rejoice is an activity. It's an action expressed from the inner core of a person. Right? When the Hawks score today and win, by the way, we will rejoice. We'll be all jacked up, high-fiving, getting crazy, kicking over the chips. We'll be rejoicing. Right? We'll rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. It is emphatic. Right? It is an emotion. But it's also an expectation. If we go, no, 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 you know, it's not, Matt, it's nice if I delight in God, but it's not mandated. No, it's mandated. Deuteronomy chapter 28. God's telling Israel, man, I'm going to bless you if you obey, and I'm going to curse you if you disobey. Right? And he says, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until they destroy you because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commands and his statutes and, his, and all, of his, all that he's commanded to you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. If we think, oh, I can get off with just duty. I would say you can get off with just duty, but then you should repent. God, forgive me for doing things just in duty. And help cultivate in me a heart of delight. That I would obey you with joy and gladness of heart, not just binding down and doing the right thing. Again, this only comes through seeking. See, God takes a pretty hard line on what he seeks of his people when it comes to really delighting in him. And again, it's not a hard thing to do. It's not like you have to muster up better excitement. I'm going to be all excited today. I don't feel it, but I'm going to get... It's not that. You're not trying to jack yourself up in front of the mirror to get all focused. You don't have to do that. Right? What you do is you seek. Israel didn't seek, but they obeyed. And it was bad. Isaiah chapter 1. God says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. It's never good when God rolls up with that. Right? As soon as God says, hey, Sodom and Gomorrah. No, we're Israel. Yeah, shut up. Sodom and Gomorrah. That's bad. So what was so bad? Right? He says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come and appear before me, who has required uh, this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moons and Sabbaths, the calling of convocations. I can and endure, cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates them. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my face from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. This is all obedient things without any heart. God says, please stop. 
Jesus said it, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me. There's the problem. God doesn't simply want us to conform. He doesn't. You even see with Jesus in the church of Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2. He says, I see your works, I see your deeds, I see you have good doctrine, but you've lost your first love. And I will remove my lampstand. God wants his people to delight. To delight. Listen to David. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend his faithfulness. Literally, it says, feed on his faithfulness in Hebrew. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. The more we say, God, I just want to delight in you. God, I just want to be close to you. God, I just want to celebrate you. You know what he does? He writes that on your heart. You're never going to experience that writing if you are not striving to experience him. If you're not saying, I trust, I dwell, I want to befriend. He says, you're never going to be foreign. You're never going to ever experience it. But if you seek it, oh, he writes on you. He writes on you. And this is the very essence of why Jesus came into the world. It says in Titus 2, 14, he made us his own possession so that we would be zealous for good works. Not just saying, oh, I got to do the right thing. We would be passionate, chomping at the bit to do right things. Why? Philippians 2, 13, for it is God who works in you, both the will and work for his one. Good pleasure. Right? Pleasure, delight, joy, rejoicing. That's the essence in heart. But we need to seek, trust, want, push, pray, dwell, believe, not quit until we have found his presence. David said in Psalm 36, 7 through 9, How precious is your unfailing love, O God. All humanity finds shelter in the shadow of your wings. You fed them from the abundance of your own house. Let them drink from the rivers of your delights. For you are the fountain of life, the light by which we see. David just got it. He wanted this. He wanted this. So when people say, well, Matt, after last week, then if we don't have law, how do we obey? And I say, you obey this way. Love. Fear, delight, that becomes the pursuit. You own the heart of David. And what was David known for? Well, he was known for a lot of stupid. He was known for a lot of folly. But he was also known as a man after God's own heart. Right? That's his hallmark. God's own heart. And so listen to his heart as I close with it. This is just a smattering of things out of the Psalms. Listen to his cry every day. He says, listen to my voice in the morning, Lord. Each morning I bring my request to you and I wait expectantly. I will worship at your temple with deepest awe. Your majestic name that fills all the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. And I will praise you, Lord, with all of my heart. I will tell of all your marvelous things that you have done. I will be filled with joy because of you. I will sing praises to you, your name, O Most High. Turn and answer me, O Lord, my God. Restore the sparkle to my eye or I will die. Lord, you alone are my inheritance, the cup of my blessing. You guard all that is mine. I am praying that you to you because I know you alone will answer. O God, you are the lamp for me, the Lord, my God, who lights up my darkness. 
Oh, Lord, give my life to you. I trust in you, my God. Show me the right path. Oh, Lord, point out the road for me to follow. Lead me by your truth and teach me for you are God and you save me. And all day long, I put my hope in you. For as the deer pants for the flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, oh, God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. Oh, when shall I come to appear before my God? 